Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hello, I'm Balaam Usitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Hey, Mike, today we're joined by Kizzy Parks. Kizzy is founder and president of K Parks Consulting. It's a firm that provides corporate training, executive coaching, analytics, diversity and inclusion guidance, leadership development, and team building services, mainly to U.S. federal government and other partner and partners with other large corporations uh, to provide these services to the U.S. government. Baylor, this sounds really interesting. I've kind of dabbled in this space a little bit when I used to be a professor at George Mason University in D.C., so I was right in the thick of kind of the D.C. consulting kind of game. So this is a really interesting topic to me, and it also covers areas of diversity and inclusion, which is another um, kind of pet topic of mine, something that I'm interested in, and ways to open up entrepreneurial opportunities to people who maybe don't have had, didn't have the opportunities that um, other people had. And I think this is a really cool pathway uh, that we that I'm looking forward to hearing what Kizzy's approach is to this, because I think it's a really cool pathway for non-traditional entrepreneurs to, to get into the game. So let's jump right into the interview, Bela. Hello, Kizzy. How are you? Hello. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. So nice to meet you. So nice to meet you. I'm so sorry for the delay. I was like, oh. That's all right. Uh, and sorry for having to reschedule this a couple of times. I apologize for that. But we're together now. No worries. Yeah. So welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. So where are you uh, geographically located? I am in Miami Beach. Oh, very nice. Is that your permanent uh, residence? It is. And what's the temperature down there today? Uh, it's probably 89. Oh, wow. So I'm in upstate New York. Uh, so here on May 6th, uh, tonight, we have a freeze warning. Yeah, that's... <laughs> which, where, where is the state? Which... Uh, about an hour north of Albany is where I live. Oh, I went to Alfred University. Yeah. I mean, it's Western. Yeah, yeah. May is, is tricky up there. It is. It is. I mean, it's a beautiful day today. It was 60, 62 degrees, but tonight it'll be 28. <laughs> so anyway, well, welcome to the show. So uh, thanks for agreeing to be a guest. And uh, we'll just have a conversation and sort of see, see where it goes. So uh, tell me what you do. Ooh, <laughs> what I do. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, what I do is make lives easier, and I do that through government contracting services. So my main companies provide a lot of services to the federal government, and then my new company works with small business owners to help them win profitable contracts. Oh, wonderful. So I really want to peel this onion back because there's a lot of entrepreneurs who are very interested in, in working with the federal or even state or local governments. And, and sometimes it feels a little bit intimidating. Uh, so how did you get started in sort of working, uh, and it's the federal government, I assume? Yes, in the federal government. So when I was in graduate school, I applied for a graduate research fellowship at Patrick, now Space Force, in Central Florida. And I thought, oh, I'll take this position. I'll work there until I graduate that December and I'll go on and work somewhere with this PhD. And none of that happened. 
<laughs> Instead, uh, a couple weeks before I graduated, the director of research said, hey, I heard you're graduating. I would like to keep you on as a subcontractor. And a few months later, I incorporated my sole proprietorship, which I had started in um, about two years prior. I incorpor incorporated that and formed K Parks Consulting and have been doing it for over 10 years. Uh, and, and always as sort of an independent contractor and not an employee. Is that correct? So I have three government contracting companies and over 50 team members. Yeah. So all of my work has been funneled through my corporation, one of my three corporations. Yes. And my team provides all the services. Yeah, yeah. I didn't ask that question well. I guess yeah. uh, <laughs> what, I, what I was trying to get to was you, you, you're not an employee of the federal government. It's your company or companies that have contracts with the federal government. Correct. Yes, that is correct. That the um, federal government is one of the biggest purchasers, period. Yeah. It, they spend, I believe, over $500 billion. It's crazy, the amount of money. And they buy everything. Yes. And so the the actual contract is with with one of my firms, or what's really cool is you can partner and you can partner with like, for instance, IBM is one of our partners. And so if they have work, then they subcontract it down to us. Got it. Got it. And what type, what type of services do, you, do, do your companies provide? We provide a lot of training and development, curriculum development, online training, in-person, blended. We inspect all vape shops in America. Oh, wow. Like they go mm -hmm. to make sure they're compliant. Um, we have different staffing positions, exercise physiologists, uh, religious positions. I've had two Catholic positions. Wow. So it's a broad spectrum of services that you provide, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. So uh, be before we connected here, uh, I was reading your bio and I found it very interesting. There's a little story in there about uh, your grandmother, who was an avid golfer, and uh, you uh, got your first taste of entrepreneurship sort of uh, with her. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So when I was younger, so like elementary school, we lived in good old Danville, Illinois, and my grandmother Clump always golfed. Her and my grandfather always golfed. So I knew the value of golf balls. And my friend Rhea, there was a golf course that was like right next to her house. And in that alley were like a ton of golf balls. Like you would walk through there, tons of golf balls. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to pick these up. I'm going to clean them, keep the good ones for grandma and resell the other ones through the fence to the golfers to buy nutty bars and Funyuns because that was my jam then. I loved eating them together. Yeah. And that's what I did. And it was my first uh, entrepreneurial endeavor. And my parents encouraged it. And I always knew. I always knew since I was younger that um, I was going to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Excellent. So uh, let's keep building on that story. So what sort of happened next? You have this little golf ball business. You're selling golf balls. 
or reselling used golf balls, I said, uh, which is really cool. And, and then sort of uh, take me through the progression from there. Uh, well, from there, it was just kind of like, okay. And then it was whatever next thing that they wanted us to sell as children, whether it was cookies or there was something that you would sell to get tickets to buy things. There was, I was always involved in something like that, like something I was selling in the neighborhood. And then when I got to college, um, the only like kind of, there, there were a couple entrepreneurial things. I would flip textbooks. Uh, I got into um, early in the dot-com era, there were these affiliate codes where you would earn a lot of money. Oh, yes. Yes, I remember those. So I had a lot of affiliate codes. Um, and then in graduate school, I maybe tutored. I, I was really focused on um, my studies, except for the latter part of the PhD program. What I discovered was that there was a need for my skill set, for my ability to analyze data, the fact that I had a master's degree. And so I started teaching online. And one of the schools I taught for, I was 1099. Mm -hmm. so, so I became a sole proprietor the last couple of years of graduate school, teaching online, analyzing data. I um, would augment like different consulting companies. And so then it, it continued up until, um, you know, Patrick Space Force. Yes, yes. And, and when you were close to graduation and, uh, you know, the director there asked you to stay on as an independent contractor, were you thinking about that or were you thinking about, no, I'm going to go work for IBM or some other large company and, and sort of have a career that way? It was so wild. It was so wild. I was praying not to get jobs. So there was one interview I went on and I thought to myself, I did not work this hard to work at that company. And then there was, <laughs> I like that way you said that. <laughs> it's true. I was like, I did not go through all of this to then have to share an office and be in this position where everyone in the interview looked miserable. Yeah. yeah. I was like, wow. You know, that's, that's really a, a good observation because I think a lot of people when they're looking for a job, they they always look they always think about it as a one way interview. In other words, the company's interviewing them. But I, I've had a lot of jobs in my life, and I've been on a lot of interviews. And and man, I put just as much time and energy into interviewing the company. Is this a place I want to work? Is it a place I want to give you know big chunk of my life for the next period of time? And I think that's a really important thing that sometimes people overlook. It definitely is, and it's the small things. Like, for instance, I believe none of them had worked there for more than five years. And I also remember the, I think the hiring manager didn't attend. And it, it just, and it didn't feel right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then you add in, they showed where you would work. And I thought, wow, this is very cold. And it just, it wasn't a very good fit. Yeah. Yeah, there's always a vibe you get, right? It's like walking into any room. You sort of, it could be a party, it could be a store, it could be a restaurant, it could be anything, but it has a vibe. And when, you, when you're interviewing, your antenna needs to be up to sort of sense that vibe and sort of, oh, you know, why do people, why, do, why is everyone so happy? Or is, why does everyone look so depressed? <laughs> yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. 
And I remember that they did not look very happy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you did go on some corporate level interviews then during that time. I did. And there was a second one I went on in Denver and they actually offered me a position and they offered a position. Um, and I, um, I had to turn it down. Yeah, that's okay. I had to turn it down. And, you know, the reason I turned it down was, you know, it was, it was, (laughs) the main reason was because they did not have a lot of diversity in their firm. And there was a time in my life where I was the only person of color in a K through eight school. And I didn't want to have that experience anymore. And they were also an international company too. Mm -hmm. And so the the people were really lovely and the job was really cool. It just wasn't a very good fit for where I wanted to go. But, um, you know, I remember them and I have a lot of respect for who they are and they're still in business, which is tremendous. Uh, So that those were like the only two where I interviewed and then literally out of the blue, I still remember the director of research was like, Kizzy, I heard you're graduating. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you're yeah. talking to me. I like never spoken to you before really. Yeah. So, oh, so how did you get from, you know, uh, being an independent contractor, uh, right after graduation and working as a one person to growing an organization, take us through that evolution. So as I started growing, so when I received the first subcontract, there were a lot of tasks. And then I got connected probably less than a year to a firm in the Orlando area that specialized in diversity and inclusion. They too needed a PhD with data analytic skills. And they had um, access to Fortune 500 companies, which I didn't have. So as I started to bring on more clients, I then picked up an undergrad intern at my alma mater, Florida Institute of Technology. And we worked together. And then from there, I picked up more interns. I would pay people. I would pay, um, it could be somebody I went to school with or somebody I came across that had a certain skill set that I was looking for. But then fast forward in 2012, is when I had my official second hire. And what led to that and what led to the subsequent growth was my understanding of government contracting. We had received what's called an eight, like the number eight and then A is an alpha set aside. And so I really leveraged that. And that's how we started to grow. And also, you know, what's really intriguing in the government space it's one of the few industries where you literally could go from one person to 200 billable people, not people to help you because you have a tech company, not people to help you because you're trying to ramp up for funding or you receive funding, but 200 billable people you're invoicing for every month. That literally happens all the time. And that happened to us where I picked up like five employees like that overnight. And I was like, whoa. And so 
Um, but I knew out the gate that I didn't want to have hundreds of employees. And so the, the 8A set aside helped. My knowledge of federal government space helped. And just really getting in there around business development really helped. And then later on, I leveraged what's called a all small mentor protege program that is an official program through the federal government for small businesses. And I leveraged that. And that really helped take us to the next level. Yeah. Yeah. And are most of these uh, contracts, are they uh, fixed price or are they uh, time and materials? The contracts that we have are both. So many of our contracts are firm fixed price, one year plus four, a base plus four. We have some, we have one contract that's firm fixed price, time and material, uh, and overhead, um, other other costs, ODCs, other direct costs. We have some contracts that are deliverable based. So it's firm fixed price, but you only get paid once you submit the deliverable or you um, provide what's required for the milestone. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've seen, uh, I may not be using exactly the right terms, but I'll try to use descriptive uh, words here, like request for proposals uh, come out. And and oftentimes, you know, what you hear through the grapevine is that that's already earmarked for somebody, but they sort of have to put these out to bid. And, you know, so people re respond to them because I've, I've rarely encountered someone who, who got their foot in the door through one of those requests for proposals, you know, cold. In other words, that they didn't have a connection. So talk to me a little bit about that. So how do how does a. How does an entrepreneur who's got a business who maybe wants to branch out and, and do some government contracting, what's sort of the first step that someone can take? That's such a great question. So the first step involves a little bit of paperwork. So there are different portals you have to register in. So let's say you magically did that. It's very simple, you know, to do that. But let's say you magically did that. The next very important, this is like a super, super important step. And that is your mindset. Because what happens is someone will say, well, you know, I provide marketing services to commercial clients. I'm really good. And I know the federal government's going to love what I do. I'm pretty sure the federal government will love what you do too. But you have to think about the mindset piece and have to decide what kind of entrepreneur do you want to be? Do you only want to offer what you're offering right now? Or do you want to offer what the government's buying? And so that brings us to the um, war dogs example. So if any of listeners have watched war dogs, or if you haven't, I suggest you watch it. So uh, I don't, I don't know what that is. So expand that a little bit. So it was a movie about these government contractors that used the government contracting portal, won a lot of work, committed some crimes, and ran into a lot of issues. Okay. The takeaway from it is the, the website that they went to, while it's since evolved, everything they talk about in that movie is really spot on Got with it. how government contracting works. So there's a website that you can go to, beta.sam.gov, to look for opportunities. 
But that's where the mindset comes in. So for instance, if you look up training, you might see spiritual training. And then you go in there and you read more and it may be training for um, a religious position. And maybe you're like, well, but you know, I, I just provide leadership training. Okay, well, why can't you provide spiritual training too? So it goes back to that mindset. So with the federal government, those who have a more entrepreneurial mindset that think like a big business, they're going to do really, really well. When people are super, super niche all of the time, it it's very difficult for you to have ongoing revenue because it may just be a one-off, like one training here or one project there, and you're not you're not getting the one year plus four. You're not getting that five years worth of continuous revenue. So that's the first thing that I suggest people do because I discovered this one big business, they bid on firefighter positions. I had no idea that local firefighters worked for government contractors like, like me. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. And this firm is huge. They're like a $4 billion a year company and they bid on firefighters in addition to other positions. But that's just the point. I don't think they were founded to bid on firefighters, right. but somewhere along the line, they discovered, wow, this is a profitable area. Why not bid on it? And that's the key to government contracting. So uh, as often as I have said in my, in my entrepreneurship classes, uh, opportunity recognition is one of the key aspects of being a successful entrepreneur. And the story that you just told is exactly that. It's recognizing there's an opportunity and, and maybe it's not exactly what I want to do, but if I go do it, it's going to open up other doors that what may in, enable me to do other things that I want to do. Yes. Right. It's so true. And they buy everything. They buy kosher potato chips. They buy books. They buy scopes to control the hog population. They buy cybersecurity. They buy training. They buy staffing. I mean, it's, there's no shortage all it takes is just a lot of persistence and creativity. Yeah. Now, are there any special requirements that a company must meet in order to be a, a contractor for the government? If a company wants to receive a prime contract, they must be registered in the SAM system. And they'll ask for different information about your business, whether you're a solopreneur S corporation, C corporation, they ask for that information. And you're also going to receive a, a um, cage code and a DUNS number. And so once you have those, then you're quote unquote official. And especially if you're a small business, they'll certify you as a small business. And so that's all that's required. Now, if, if you're like, well, I don't know if I want to do any of that. You could work for as an as a 1099, or your company could work for as a 1099 for a firm like mine or an IBM or somebody else, because you don't have to be registered in any of those systems to then be a subcontractor or a team member. I was not registered in. Any of those things. Understand. Understand. <laughs> I did. Yeah. I mean, I had my social security number as my, you know, because I was a solopreneur. 
and I think I may have received a tax ID, that's basically it. So that is, that's actually um, an approach that many take is that they'll partner with firms, provide the services, and maybe they partner with five firms. And so that provides the revenue that they're seeking. Yeah. Yeah. Now, are there any special uh, reporting requirements or other hoops that you sort of have to jump through uh, during the process? Um, during the process, some things may come up just to make sure you are who you say you are. And the SAM system had some fraud. So you may have to send like a cert, um, maybe a notarized letter. But in reality, it's not a lot. The myth is that a firm must have a bunch of certifications in order to win government work, that they must be minority owned or veteran owned or woman owned. And I'm not saying that none of these set are like set asides that they can't help you grow, but you don't need them to win any work or to get any work. What's really important is you're providing a solution to whatever their problem is or to help them further with their mission. I mean, if they're looking to buy textbooks for the Bureau of Prisons and you provide the best price on textbooks, that's all they care about. That's all they care about. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So in, in many ways, what I hear you saying is it's it's just like winning any other business, whether it be the private sector or the public sector. You, you have to recognize the opportunity. You have to be a real business, right? Because they're going to check you out. The private sector checks you out too. And, and, and you, and you got to be competitive. You got to provide a good service and at a competitive price and um, you go from there. Yes. Yeah. Very good. I imagine that as, as a, uh, you've been doing this for a number of years now. And one of your businesses is helping other businesses figure out how to do this. So talk to me a little bit about that. How do, the, how do people who might be interested in, in engaging with you find you? What types of services does your business provide, et cetera? Yeah, definitely. You know, reach out to me on LinkedIn, Kizzy Parks. That's the fastest way. DM me. I'm on Instagram too, Kizzy M. Parks, and I'm on Facebook. But you, you can reach me fast on LinkedIn and on Instagram. So what I found is that many people are interested in the federal government, or maybe they tried it and never got a contract or don't really know what to do because working with the federal government is, is like being dropped off in the largest Amazon warehouse and being asked to pick up a, a surfboard and like a bag of Doritos and get it ready for shipping. Like it's just, it seems impossible. Right. And so I really help firms with understanding the mindset of the federal buyer, the mindset that they need to get into, how to really look for opportunities, because there's different ways to look, there's different approaches to take, as well as how to properly bid on them. Because the thing about the federal government, um, so with the private sector, often you may put together a nice presentation, or maybe it's just on Zoom, or maybe it's you create a YouTube video, or who knows, you know, it's you just decide however you want to do it, right? Or maybe your firm has a method. With the federal government, 
usually it's very specific and they'll say one inch margins, 12 point font, Times New Roman or Arial, no spacing. Or they'll say things like spacing or you can use images and you can use resumes and bios and those don't count toward the page limit. They do count toward the page limit. There is a page limit. I mean, it's very, very, very specific as far as what they are looking for, how you word your bids, how you spin your bids, and also understanding if that opportunity is already perhaps wired for another company. And so those things are really helpful to know as well as what do you do once you get a contract? Because this is an area that, uh, I mean, we de I definitely messed up um, in a couple opportunities where, I mean, it's the biggest lesson where my client relation skills were not where they are today. And I've also noticed that with others in this space or who want to get into this space, and that is the importance of client relations. Because just like in the private sector, once you get in the door, there is an opportunity potentially to grow your work. Sometimes there isn't, and that's okay, but sometimes yeah. there is. So like, for instance, we have a contract. It initially started out with um, like 14 people. Now we almost have 30. Yeah, very nice, very nice. Yeah. So uh, if do you do this, uh, I'll, I'll use the word consulting, to help companies figure out how to get into the government contracting business and, and how to stay in the government contracting business. Is this something that you do sort of on an, on an individual basis or is there a course that you run? So what's sort of the embodiment of it? So I have a course starting in July that's eight weeks in length. I also have a really cool module on um, that's like an additional module with my, my special executive retired government team member who's amazing, William. Um, I also have that available. So I have the eight-week course. I have the um, add-on with William. I also offer monthly business development services. That's something completely new. Uh, those are available if someone's interested in that. Uh, but those are the kind of the three areas from now for right now. And I plan on offering some monthly one-on-one -on -one coaching with me uh, and maybe bring in my other um, contracting officer to do more role-playing and to help with more specialized questions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this has been a great interview. We've been at this almost 30 minutes now. Uh, so I want to start wrapping it up. Uh, but I had one more question for you, and that is, uh, if you if someone uh, is interested in in sort of, and let's say they're a new entrepreneur, they they just graduated. Uh, actually, I have two questions now, <laughs> and they just graduated, uh, and they're thinking about you know starting a, a business at some point, some point, and they're and they're struggling with, do I start it now, or do I go work for a larger company for a period of time? Maybe that larger company is a government contractor, so I sort of learn a little bit about how the space works and then branch out on my own, or should I just branch out on my own and do it now? Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. The first thing is, are your bills paid? That's the most important question is, 
do you have the resources coming in to pay your bills? If the answer is yes, however, you, you're going to you know work at night or you have a savings or your parents are bankrolling you or you just your bills are paid for by a significant yes. others, else, then by all means, I say take that entrepreneurial leap. Why not? Realizing that it's very challenging, you know. 60, at least 60% of small businesses aren't profitable and many small businesses fail within the first five years. So it's very, very challenging. Now, if you're saying to yourself, I'm not sure if my bills are paid, then what you can do is take on that job, learn. And then from the hours of 7 PM to two in the morning, that's when you start to work on your business idea and you can test it. What's really, I mean, the, the big takeaways are that when you go out on this entrepreneurial journey, it really is you building the plane while it's in the air. Yes. There's, there's nothing else to say. Like, regardless of being in business for 13 years, I never expected I would receive a notification from the state of Ohio that a person that never worked for my company filed an on unemployment claim mm -hmm. and almost paid for it. I have, I mean, it's just like boggles my mind. Or once I had an employee wake up handcuffed to a bed in a hospital, I mean, <laughs> nothing prepares you for these things. Right. And so when you take on that entrepreneurial journey, you have to realize you take on all the risk and I love risk. So for me, I love it. And it, it's so exhilarating but just realize you take on all of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, that was a great piece of advice here and a gr wonderful way to wrap this up. Uh, I really thank you for being on the podcast. You're a wonderful guest, and I think there's a lot of great things to share. I'll make sure that your contact information is in the show notes and uh, people can uh, figure out how to get a hold of you from there. Thank you very much, Kizzy. Thank you. Wow, Bela, that was even cooler than I expected. What a lot of uh, really interesting facts and, and some great stories uh, that Kizzy uh, shared with you. What struck you uh, most about the conversation you had? So, you know, Mike, uh, lots of times when I, when I work with uh, entrepreneurial companies back in my VC days or back when I was a professor, uh, many of them are interested in figuring out how to do contracts for the government, whether it be the federal government or more regional local governments. And oftentimes they're intimidated because they've heard horror stories about various different things or every once in a while, you know, they read a headline in a newspaper that talks about some contract that was sort of rigged for a particular supplier, et cetera. Uh, so they tend to be a little cautious about them, a little nervous, not, don't quite know what to do. Uh, but I think what I learned from Kizzy is that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity out there. Uh, to, to work with the various government entities. Uh, they buy all sorts of stuff. I mean, they buy everything. You don't, you don't think about it, right? But I mean, they buy things from toilet paper and paper towels to cars to airplanes. I mean, they buy everything. So there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there. And they buy not just physical goods, but they buy consulting services, right? They buy training programs, uh, so there's tremendous opportunity for for very wide degree of companies to engage here. So I think that was, for me, sort of the main takeaway of, wow, there's a tremendous amount of opportunity here. 
Uh, and yes, indeed, there are some steps that you need to take to get sort of qualified as a government supplier. Uh, I know in various different states, uh, I've done some consulting for some state universities uh, in New Jersey and here in New York and uh, in Ohio, and I had to become an approved state vendor in order to do that, you know, which meant I had to fill out some forms, but it was no big deal. Um, so you got to go through some of those hoops. But once you do that, you're in and, and then you can go pursue business just like you would any other business. And if you think about it, it's really no, in many ways, no different than being a supplier to Walmart or to uh, other large retailers. You got to sort of go through the hoops. You got to become an approved supplier and then, you know, you can engage in business. So that to me was a, a big takeaway from my conversation with her. Agreed, Bailan. You know, the thing that you need to remember is that, right, federal governments, state governments, local governments have been instructed to outsource, right? They said, look, you know, the legislature has said, look, you have to be more efficient with your money. And I don't know if it actually winds up costing any less. I'm sure other people are experts on this. But the fact that um, people want uh, or uh, the trend is towards smaller government, okay, that means that a lot of services that government employees used to provide are now outsourced to private companies. And this is, again, where, where there's a huge opportunity because and originally a lot of what happened was, was, okay, the government employees would get laid off, right? They would go work for the consulting companies and they would get hired back to do essentially their old jobs. Now, the problem with this model, the, one of many problems, right, but is it tended to foster kind of the good old boys network, right? So either the big consulting companies, which were pretty much all, you know, run by white men who went to Ivy League schools and these kind of the workers who were there kind of created jobs for their friends and, and contracts for their friends. And the little people didn't get a shot, right? So the people that were small business owners didn't, true small business owners didn't have a shot. And even worse, people like veterans or women or, uh, or, or uh, people of color, none of these people had the ins necessarily to do this. So in response, the government created some special programs. And some people yelled that these are set-asides or blah, blah, blah. But really, it's just opening the door so that everybody has a chance to compete. So I was involved in some bidding and some contracts and worked with some, partnered with some, some companies that fit some of these criteria where they had some extra access, just an extra leg up. Um, but you're right, the process is pretty complicated. It's not impossible, but it's being able to speak this kind of bureaucratic ease and knowing how to fill the forms out and knowing the acronyms, even the number of, the amount of acronyms, right, and abbreviations in federal contracting are mind boggling. But Bela, you're absolutely right. Once you get a contract vehicle, which means you're an approved supplier and you've said, yeah, we can provide this and kind of shown you can you can do something. Now you're you've made a, the shortlist, essentially, uh, uh, and when it comes to supplier selection. Um, and it's really a cool model. And it sounded like, gosh, you know, uh, Kizzy knows this business and this is the kind of person you'd want to go if you want to break into this business. So if you want to be an entrepreneur and you see a market for the services or products you're providing, something like this can really... Um, can really uh, fit the bill. And she can connect you with some of these big companies that are looking for these smaller businesses, especially veteran-owned or owned by people who are disabled or owned by women or people of color. Uh, she can connect you because sometimes it's the idea that the small company gets the contract and they subcontract out some of the work to a larger company, and that's completely okay, right? But the small business owner who might not get a shot normally now has a chance to, to win this business. 
So it's really a cool system from my standpoint. I saw lots of great people um, when I was in Washington, D.C. that normally wouldn't have been able to be entrepreneurs and to get into this game had the opportunity. You still have to show you can do it. At the end of the day, if you don't provide, you don't deliver, you're not going to get more another contract. But at least you have a chance to prove what you can do. And I think that's really important. And I think people like Kizzy are really important in, in the kind of a, for another path. It's a very different entrepreneurial path than you and I have talked about before, but it's one that's really important. And I'm, I was really excited to hear what Kizzy had to say. Yeah. Yeah. Good points, Mike. You know, I, there, are two, there are two other things that pop into my mind. One is, uh, remember how Kizzy started. She started as a subcontractor to a, a, another firm, right? So she was sort of she was sort of an ind- she was an independent contractor, and it was through that that she sort of learned the ropes. And so the point being is is lots of times there's large companies or small companies that get these big contracts, but you can then get a piece of that from that company that got the contract. And then as you're doing that, and you mentioned this, you get to learn the ropes. You get to learn the vernacular. You get to learn how all this stuff goes, right? You get to learn how to dance the dance. And and that's a good way of doing it. And then you can become, I think it's called the prime contractor or the main contractor, yeah. right? That's engaging it and with the with the federal government or the state government or whatever. So I, I think that's a you know another another way to think. You don't have to think about I gotta go directly. You can go indirectly by being a subcontractor to someone who has a contract with a, with a government agency. The other thing I, I, I think that Kizzy brought up, which I think was really good, was you have to treat uh, these government contracts just like you would any other customer. They're no different. And, and don't think of them as being different. They still, you still need to have good customer relations. You have to engage with your customer. You got to keep them up to date. You don't want to surprise them, right? All the things that we learn about managing your customers, uh, you still have to do. Don't, don't think about these as any different because it's still an individual on the other side of that table that's making a decision as to who's going to get this contract, just like it is when you're making any sale uh, and, and you have any engagement with any other customer in the world. So I thought that was another really good point that she brought up. Agreed, Bella. A couple of tidbits from my learning that dovetailed nicely to, to what Gizzy said was, um, you know, again, with knowing the, the client, you have to do your homework. You have to know if it's whatever this government agency is, what their mission is, kind of what they've been doing in the past, who else they've been working with. The nice thing is there's something called the Federal Register. And uh, this, you can actually go and search this. It's a public document and you can see um, this agency and even the, the, the person who's the coordinating officer for the project. You can see what other projects that they've had. Uh, in recent years, and you can kind of see the history of this um, through publicly available documents. So that's one of the nice things about uh, um, uh, the government is uh, there's a there's a lot of transparency, and so you can actually do some homework and find out some things um, uh, fairly easily. You just have to know where to look. So that's kind of the important thing is doing your homework. And then the second thing that's really important with government clients is uh, I guess there's two pieces to this. Is one is know about project management. And I would not go into being a government contractor uh, and talk to the OPM the, the, or whatever the agency is, Office of Personnel Management or whoever the agency that's running the contract without having some project management skills. And that means understanding the scope of the project and having certain documents, um, certain ways of tracking budget, certain ways of tracking 
um, the time spent and things like this. There's some specifics there. So I think before you do something like this, taking a good online project management class or at your local community college um, is something that's, that will really, really help you manage the world of government contracting. Um, so that's kind of number one. And number two, the idea of what a contract is. So if you can do a little bit of a, of a pre preliminary kind of learning about different types of government contracts, fixed cost, cost plus, um, uh, incentive-based contracting. Um, and there's lots of articles written about this, but that's another thing that I would do to kind of um, understand because the two biggest parts, I think, of the uh, challenges that at least I saw was managing the project and you, you have to have milestones and you have to provide information um, at multiple steps along the way with a government contract. Um, and then a big report at the end, um, and then just understanding the nuances of the contract itself. So those are kind of my two big things. And, you know, from what Kizzy was saying, I think she offers training in these things and she offers project things herself. But even before you go talk to a contractor, before you decide whether you want to do this or not, uh, or before you go and talk to a consultant or before you decide, a little bit of knowledge of those two things, project management and contracting, I think will, will, will help you kind of make your mind up if you want to jump into this, this swimming pool or not. Yeah, those are good points, Mike. And let me just expand that a little bit to say that the points that you brought up apply not just to the government, but any large corporation or organization that you may engage with. They're going to have their way of doing things. They're going to have their way of doing purchase agreements. They're going to have their way of doing contracts. They're going to have their way of project management. And your job, one of your jobs as a, as a contractor, is to make the contract coordinator or the person that you're interfacing with their job easy, right? You don't want to make their job difficult. So if, if they want the report laid out a certain way in a certain font size with certain types of spacing, et cetera, do it. Because if you don't do it, you're, you're just making that person's job more difficult. And you know, that doesn't go into the plus column, as I like to say, when it comes to evaluating a relationship, right? You want, you want to make their job as easy as possible. So those points you made uh, are excellent points, and, my, and, and they're applicable to many organizations, not just uh, governmental ones. Yeah, I think attention to detail is one of these things that you need to have when you're working with, and Bella, Bella great point, a, a government or a big company. Attention to detail is critical. Sometimes if you're, if you're not, they'll, the deliverable will be specified, and if you're, it's in the wrong font, they can withhold, they usually don't, but they can withhold the, the, the payment, right? right. That's in, written into the contract is what the deliverables are. So you need to just be on top of this stuff. And it doesn't mean that if you're an entrepreneur and you don't have good attention to detail or you don't know this, it's not a deal killer, but you better have somebody on your team that is. And That's there's right. nothing wrong with bringing in somebody to say, look, I'm bidding. I mean, this happened to me all the time. I was asked to be part of a team that put in a bid, Okay. And I would go and be a part of the pitch and they would use my CV and my skills. I was there always to fill a specific role because I had knowledge or experience that they needed on this contract. Um, and I would be an independent contractor, a subcontractor on the larger contract. Um, and I don't know if it was maybe 20% of the time or 25% of the time these bids we won, right? I was part of the winning team. 75% I wasn't. So it's no problem to bring in experts on your team. You don't have to be paying them yet. They don't have to be your employees. They're just part of the, the bid team. So you can have, you're the prime, as you said, you're the main contractor and you've got maybe three other um, um, <coughs> people that work 
uh, maybe for different, they work on their own or they work for different companies and they're your subcontractors and it does, they don't have to be full time, but you can say, ah, this is the person that will be providing the contract management experience. They've got 15 years of managing contracts for IBM. This is the person that's going to provide our project management skills. Um, they've got a bachelor's degree in project management and have worked for the last six years for um, another small con uh, consulting company or they're an independent consultant. And you can put that forward as your team. So, I mean, I didn't want to scare people, Bela, right? That if you don't have those skills, you're not screwed. But if you need e either yourself and or have some people on your team that, Absolutely. that bring that to the table. Absolutely. All right. What cool. do you say? We wrap this one, Mike? I think so, Bela. That was a great interview. And thanks for, for, uh, for, for doing that and, and, and bringing Kizzy onto the show. So, audience, again, as always, thank you so much for joining us. We hope that uh, you found today as interesting and thought-provoking as we did. And as always, if you have questions about what we discussed or suggestions for future guests or complaints, what have you, uh, we're always happy to hear from you. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And please do follow us uh, in your favorite podcasting application uh, so you don't miss another episode. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon, Mike. Great, Bela, from over here in Münster, Germany. Bis bald, as we say, or see you soon. <laughs>